Donald J. Trump is calling for a total and complete shutdown of Muslims entering the United States until our country's representatives can figure out what the hell is going on. A lot of the 2016 presidential campaign rhetoric was marked by anxiety about who we consider American, and especially who we don't. The thing is, these anxieties are nothing new. This is a debate that goes as far back as America itself. Talk of establishing registries, banning immigration, and even rounding up people of certain racial or religious backgrounds has a firm precedent in American history. One example is the internment of Japanese Americans during World War II. It's an ugly part of American history that people rarely learn about in school, if at all. Another thing we don't often learn? Multiracial Japanese Americans were also sent to live in the camps. About 700, actually. Today on Other, Mixed Race in America, we're going to be talking about one example of how our country has always struggled to define what it means to be American. We'll hear from someone who, because of her mixed race heritage, found herself caught in the middle of the Japanese-American internment debacle. But first, some context. My name is Duncan Williams, and I'm the director of the USC Shinzo Ito Center for Japanese Religions and Culture. Williams told me that to understand the Japanese internment story, you first have to understand the history of anti-Japanese sentiment in America that had been building during the 19th and 20th centuries. Williams pointed to anti-miscegenation laws that made it illegal for people of different races to marry each other. These are the laws that the 1967 Supreme Court decision Loving v. Virginia invalidated. But during the pre-war years, they were still very much in force. By the time that these laws came into being, the rhetoric of what they called yellow peril, or this kind of idea of the states being overrun by a new migrant group called Asian Americans, had come to a fever pitch uh, in the media, among politicians. But the biggest fear was that they might actually get married to white Americans and, uh, and become integrated in that way. So fast forward to December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The Japanese bomb Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, which leads to the United States' entry into World War II. Two months later, President Franklin D. Roosevelt signs Executive Order 9066, which designated much of the West Coast as part of a defense command zone. This cleared the way for the immediate internment of about 110,000 Japanese Americans who were living in the area. At a certain point, they just determined that one, someone with one sixteenth Japanese blood or Japanese heritage would be categorized as Japanese and therefore uh, needed to go into camps. It wasn't as if there was more than three generations of Japanese Americans in continental United States or Hawaii. So by saying one sixteenth as a policy, it just meant anybody because it, it, was, it was trying to cover anybody up to four generations up. That ended up being about 700 people. Mostly children, but some adults as well. Signs were posted in towns up and down the West Coast, saying that all persons of Japanese heritage needed to report at such and such place at such and such time. Camps were established from Southern California up to Northern Washington State. 
And people began to sort of establish lives there. Small communities sprung up. Children went to schools and adults worked, though for wages way lower than what they had made outside the camps. But accounts of camp experiences for multiracial Japanese Americans suggest that it was doubly difficult to find their footing among what was now a racially homogenous population. I think uh, mixed race aspects of the incarceration suggest that there was a kind of doubling of some of these kind of feelings of exclusion and a time when Japanese Americans and their loyalty to the United States, their sense of belonging to the United States was questioned. Uh, Mixed-race children found themselves questioned from, from multiple quarters. So here we are in 2017. If we think about that long history and the internment as the kind of end point of that, there are some worrying concerns in our current political climate in which there's a lot of rhetoric about building walls on borders. What's very concerning about our current situation is unfortunately eerily similar to what happened uh, right before the internment. I decided to try and find someone who had actually been through all of this. Virginia Masuoka is an 85-year-old woman living in San Francisco, and she has an amazing knack for remembering details. Quick clarification. Her name is Virginia, but you'll also hear her referred to as Ginny or Ginger. Oh, and her maiden name is Matsuyama, so some kids would call her Mats. I'll refer to her as Ginny, though, because that's how she introduced herself to me. Anyway, Ginny is the youngest of eight, and the daughter of a Japanese martial arts instructor and a white American farm woman. She grew up in Sonoma, California on a produce farm. In April of 1942, when she was 10 years old, Ginny was sent to a camp called the Tanafran Assembly Center with two of her older brothers. She still remembers what it was like and the effect it had on her. Oh, I look back at it and I, I really had a good secure life as a 10-year-old. Ginny said she remembered feeling generally accepted in her small town, despite her mixed racial background. In Sonoma, our family was pretty well known because of the produce garden. It was Broadway Gardens. She did remember a couple of incidents, though. One boy called me a Jap. I was in the sixth grade, and he says, Mots, you're a Jap, and you, your family started the war. And I came home... And I, I, I was really upset. And my mother said, Girlie, you're just not too smart, are you? And I said, why? And she said, you go back and you, next time he says that to you, you tell him you're not a Jap, you're a half Jap. And I egged him on the next day. I went, I, stupid me, I went back to school and I egged him on. And he finally came out and said, oh, go away, you Jap. And I said, uh-uh, I'm not a Jap. And he says, Mots, you know you are. What's the matter with you? I said, uh-uh, I'm a half-jap. The expression on his face was like a dog that had been bitten by a flea for the first time. He said, you're crazy. Later on, I got to thinking, I said, you know, Mama, that really didn't make any sense. She said it worked, didn't it? <laughs> she remembers the day the Japanese bombed Pearl Harbor. She was playing football with her dad and her brothers. Well, I had come home from Sunday school and uh, we were playing tag football, and if, if I whined and cried enough, they'd let me play. Our mother came out of the house, and she said, Louie, you've got to get back to camp as soon as possible because Japan attacked Pearl Harbor. Louie was her older brother, who was in the Army at the time. We all kind of looked at each other, and they said, what's Mama talking about? 
I remember my father came up behind me there, and he was even playing. He he had his suit pants and white shirt on and everything, and he was out there playing tag football with everybody. But uh, he came up, he put his arm around me, and he said, this is so bad, Ginger, this is bad. And um, they gave him 36 hours to leave California. Her father taught martial arts to law enforcement in the area, so they set him up with a job in Colorado so he wouldn't have to go to the camps. Still, he wouldn't be reunited with his family until after the war. It wasn't until April that the orders to relocate reached her town, but when they came, they came quickly. I was in school on a Friday. Sunday morning I was in camp. We stayed in a barracks-like thing, just like everybody else. I remember walking into it and looking around and thinking, gee, where do we hang our clothes? (laughs) But they had those little uh, metal hooks that you screw into the wall. They had one double bed and one single bed, and that's where we stayed. She went to camp with her brothers, George, who everyone called Boy, and Alvin, who had a terrible cough at the time. Their mother, who was white, stayed behind at home to work on the farm. The children were alone, except for each other. On one of the first nights in camp... He just couldn't stop coughing. He had the cot, the single cot, at one side of the room, and my brother and boy and I, we we shared the, the double bed. And I remember saying to Alvin to stop coughing, and he said... Um, He said, uh, I can't. And I said, well, why don't you go home then? And he says, they won't let me. And he went, he was under the blankets and he was, he was crying. Ginny said she was grateful to have had her brothers with her because the other children weren't particularly nice to them. Well, I didn't meet too many children. They didn't really want to play with me, I think, because uh, I, I would look different to them. Because she was so young, her mother petitioned the government to let her and Alvin come home after about two months. But at 14, boy was too old to be petitioned for, so he had to stay behind. Children, you know, they, they have a, sometimes a short memory because as soon as I saw my cats and dogs and everything, I was I knew I was back home. And uh, I asked my mother, can I go to school early tomorrow? And she said, what? And I said, I'd like to surprise everybody. I could go to the classroom and sit in the seat and surprise them. She said, well, if you want to, girly. At our grammar school, we had all about 16 stairs to climb. And at the top of the stairs was my fifth grade. And you walked right into that room. And then to leave the room, you used the back door. There was a second door. So when my brother drove me to the grammar school, I stayed outside until I heard the first bell ring. Then I ran upstairs to my classroom, and I sat. And I was so happy my seat had not been touched. It was still the same as I left it. And I sat in the seat, and then I heard the bell rang and I could hear them coming up the stairs. By the time they got near the top of the stairs, I felt my heart was going to burst through my chest. And then all of a sudden, I I panicked. I thought, wait a minute, what if they don't want me? What if they tell me to go away? So um, 
I started to get up, and I was ran for the door. I was crying. I wanted my mother. And uh, I got outside the classroom, and I, I heard, Virginia, Virginia, is that you? Mots, are you back? And I heard, Miss Cooper, Virginia's back. And uh, the next thing I felt was hugs and kisses. That was... That was the most beautiful day of my life, I think. I didn't need a dictionary to describe friendship because I, I lived it. I had it that day. They were, they were really great. And then when everyone was in the classroom there seated, she said, Virginia. And I said, yes, Miss Cooper, get to your seat. Then I knew I was back home. I realized... And now more than ever, there are questions that, oh, boy, I'd love to have asked my father. But um, I I did ask him how he felt about, you know, uh, being separated from the family and uprooted like he was and everything. And he said, you know, Ginger, this was my country. I came here. They gave me the opportunity to make a name for myself. And then the war came along, so some, you do things that you, you've got to do. He loved America. Ginny could only remember feeling bitter about the internment once. I remember I was drying a dish and I put it down on the table and I said, boy, this stupid country. And I got a slap up the side of my head, not a hard one, one to let me know, don't say that. And uh, I said, well, why did you do that? And my mo- mother said, you know, girly, it's not the country. America is one of the most beautiful countries you could be in. It's some of the people that think they know how to run a country. Thanks for listening to Other, Mixed Race in America. This podcast was written and produced by me, Alex Laughlin, with editing from Terrence Samuel. You can subscribe to Other, Mixed Race in America on Radio Public, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy listening to Other, Mixed Race in America, please go to Apple Podcasts and leave us a nice review. And if you want to support great storytelling, please subscribe to The Washington Post. We're giving our listeners $100 off for a one-year all-access digital subscription. Just go to wapo.st slash other100. Again, that's wapo.st slash other100. Thank you to JJ Posway for writing our theme music and to Chris Kindred for designing our logo. Other Mixed Race in America is a podcast from The Washington Post. See all our podcasts at washingtonpost.com slash podcasts.